So my guest today is Ole Hagström. Ole is a professor of mathematical statistics at Chalmers University of Technology and a member of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences and of the Royal Swedish Academy of Engineering Sciences. Ole's main research is in probability theory and statistical mechanics, but in recent years he has broadened his research interests to focus on applied statistics, philosophy, climate science, artificial intelligence, and the social consequences of future technologies. He is the author of Here Be Dragons, Science, Technology, and the Future of Humanity, as well as many other papers on AI ethics, existential risk, and futurism. Welcome to the show, Ole. Thank you. I'm very glad to be on your show. So we're going to talk today about existential risk and artificial intelligence. Now, this is a topic that I've touched upon previously in past episodes, but never in that much depth. It's also something that I've written about a bit myself, though not as much as I would have liked. Uh, you, on the other hand, are deeply immersed in the debates about AI and existential risk. You've written a book that deals with the topic, the aforementioned book, Here Be Dragons, as well as several papers. And you've also been actively involved in various academic and policy debates about it. Now, as mentioned in the introduction, you're a mathematician by background, with expertise in the mathematics underlying aspects of AI. So I think you're an ideal guide to this thorny issue. In particular, I hope you'll be able to help listeners separate some of the hype from the reality. You know, what are the issues that we really need to think about and why? So we're going to divide our conversation today into two parts. Uh, the first part will be a relatively narrow discussion of a particular theory of AI motivation, the Omohundru Bostrom theory. And this yep. particular theory is essential to the fears about AI-induced existential risk. And then the second part will be a slightly more general discussion of AI denialism, roughly the tendency among some well-known figures not to take AI risk seriously and how we should react to or respond to that. So let's just go into the first of those topics, the Omohundro-Bostrom theory of AI motivation. And let's just ask the most basic framing question at the outset, which is, you know, what is to be understood by the term artificial intelligence in this context? So, so artificial intelligence, I, I typically avoid going into definitional issues when, when we talk about AI generally, uh, because that's, that's very, very broad. But, but the relevant thing here, uh, I think, is artificial general intelligence, uh, by which we mean uh, a, a machine or a computer program that uh, has uh, human or superhuman level uh, intelligence across uh, the full range of relevant uh, cognitive capacities. Now, that's a bit inexact. Uh, but uh, it means that uh, the machine can reason and think on, 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 on the level that we can do across basically all domains uh, or better. Right. I mean, so human likeness is the kind of basic threshold or standard for general intelligence. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, of course, a bit problematic because uh, we can imagine that uh, AI development uh, takes a path uh, that reaches uh, superintelligence levels uh, without passing through anything that uh, looks remotely like uh, human intelligence. Uh, but uh, for thoughts, thought experiments and so on, uh, I think that uh, it is sometimes useful to, to nevertheless think in terms of human level uh, artificial intelligence. 
Yeah, I think as well as we proceed through this discussion of the Omohundra Bostrom theory, the concepts and definition of intelligence and artificial intelligence that we're working with will become clearer. And also, mm-hmm. towards the end, we're going to be challenging and questioning some aspects of the, the framework as well. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably come back to all these issues. So let's start by just talking about this uh, theory of motivation. So why is the theory of motivation in particular so important to the debate about AI risk? So uh, an insight that already Alan Turing had was that uh, once we have created uh, superhuman artificial intelligence, we can no longer uh, count on staying in control. Uh, So uh, everything will then depend on uh, what the machine uh, wants to do, because what it wants to do, it most likely uh, will do. Uh, there's uh, little at that point that uh, we humans uh, can do to stop that. So that makes it incredibly important that uh, at the pre-superintelligence stages, we manage to create the machine in such a way that it has goals and motivations uh, that are good uh, from our point of view, beneficial to humanity. Uh, whatever we mean by that. Yeah, I mean, as some other people in the debate put it, that, that are somehow friendly to humanity. And again, all these concepts and terms are a little bit vague. Yeah. yeah. But that then, I think, raises an important question is to, you know, we're going to be looking at this Omohundra Bostrom theory of AI motivation. But initially, you know, what kind of theory is this? It's, it's not like a, a technical mathematical theory of how an AI system will work. It's slightly more speculative, am I right? Yes, so so what I typically say, and which I probably say in, in this paper as well, is, is that it's uh, the conclusions of this theory are not to be viewed uh, on the level of uh, mathematical theorems that are written in stone. I mean, when you have a mathematical theorem, then the mathematical community tends to accept that once sufficiently many sufficiently smart mathematicians understand the proofs uh, they will uh, agree that yes this is this is definitely the mathematical truth and the omohandra bostrom theory is not written in stone in this way uh, on the other hand it's not pure speculation either uh, so it's um, i mean i think we can grant it the status of the a theory coming out in the tradition of uh, analytic philosophy, which we can attach uh, some significance to. It's not pulled out of the air, uh, but we should still apply uh, some amount of epistemic humility towards it. Yes. So it's yeah, it's not pure idle speculation and imagination. It has some weight and some plausible application to the real world, even if it is imprecise and speculative in some sense. Because the arguments leading to the conclusions uh, have some plausibility to them, although they are not uh, entirely definite. Yeah, and I I think that framing and understanding of the theory is important when we come back to look at the topic of AI denialism at the end. Yeah. Now let's try and just get into some of the specifics of the the theory itself. And there are a few concepts that listeners will need to understand to kind of grasp the theory and its significance. 
And so one of them is, since the theory of motivation, it's all about uh, goals. And there is a distinction in the Omohundro-Bostrom theory drawn between two kinds of goals, final goals and instrumental goals. So maybe you could explain what the difference is between those two things and how to understand those concepts. So if you want, you could also phrase this in terms of uh, means and ends. And the final goals are the ends themselves, the, the, the things that the AI values uh, for their own sake, whereas instrumental goals uh, are goals that the machine uh, sets up, not because these goals are, are intrinsically valuable, uh, but that they can be helpful for achieving the final goals. Right. I mean, and just to have like a, a simple illustration of this, I I want to get a pint of milk from the fridge. That's my, let's say, let's just say that's my final goal. Yeah. And then to do that, I'll have to get up from my seat, walk down the stairs, open the door of the fridge. So, I mean, these are instrumental yeah. goals that I'll have to satisfy or fulfill on the route to achieving my final goal. Yeah, like maintaining your balance while walking towards the fridge. That yeah. would be a typical instrumental goal that it's really helpful for, for getting the milk. Okay. And I think, you know, that, that distinction between the two, whether it's a smooth distinction or a, a bright line distinction is something we'll, we'll touch upon as well when we look at criticisms of the theory. But for the time being, I think the distinction is, is tolerably clear. And just one of the points I wanted to come back to here is about the way in which intelligence is defined relative to these kinds of goals. In a sense, like is, is intelligence then the capacity to successfully identify and implement instrumental goals in order to achieve final goals? Would that be a, a kind of a useful definition of intelligence in this context? Uh, I think so. So you, you should think of the final goal as being entirely separate from your intelligence level. That's the orthogonality thesis uh, in, in the Omohundro-Bostrom uh, theory. Uh, but if, if intelligence is thought of as the general ability to achieve goals, then certainly uh, the uh, ability to set up clever instrumental goals and to achieve them uh, to the end of, of, of uh, achieving the final goal. Uh, that's certainly going to be a major component of being generally intelligent. Right. So I think you know those, those initial concepts are satisfactorily defined and clear. And now we need to get into the, the heart of the theory itself. So there are two theses that Omohundro and Bostrom identify and defend. The first of them, which you just mentioned, is this orthogonality thesis. So what is the orthogonality thesis and how should people understand it? It says approximately that uh, any uh, final goal is, uh, or more or less any final goal, uh, is uh, compatible with arbitrarily high levels of intelligence. There are going to be, you can think up uh, counterexamples to that, maybe we'll come to that. Uh, but uh, as a f first approximation, uh, you should think of uh, intelligence level and final goal as independent entities which can uh, coexist arbitrarily. 
So th this, there's this famous example of, of the paperclip Armageddon, where you, uh, the first superintelligent machine that is uh, built has the goal of maximizing uh, paperclip uh, production. And this leads to a disaster for humanity because it, the machine turns the entire planet, including ourselves, into paperclips. It might even turn into a disaster for the entire visible universe if it goes on to expand into space, turning everything into paperclips. And a common reaction to such a scenario is that, no, that contradicts uh, um, being super intelligent because it's really stupid to focus solely on uh, paperclip production when there are so many other important things uh, in the world. But that uh, reaction uh, confuses goal and intelligence. Uh, if we think of intelligence, and I think it's really in this context, it's the right way to think of intelligence as the ability to achieve goals, whatever these goals are, then there's no contradiction in uh, being very intelligent and uh, wanting to produce uh, paper clips more than anything else uh, in the world. Uh, and, and in a way, the orthogonality thesis is meant to um, uh, to address this intuition, or, or it's, it's a tool for uh, explaining uh, that uh, machines may very well have goals that look incredibly alien to us humans. Yeah, so I mean, I think the critical point here is that in everyday conversations, colloquially speaking, we tend to conflate, or, or sorry, let me put this another way, we, we tend to apply the adjective or description of intelligence to both goals and success in means end reasoning. So when I when I say somebody is, is intelligent, I often think that they have intelligent goals, or they, their goals are clever or complex or smart in some sense. But actually, for the purposes of this discussion, and the technical understanding of the risks of AI, we have to avoid that conflation of intelligence with goals. Intelligence is means end reasoning, the success means end reasoning, and it is distinct from whatever the aims or ends of the AI is. So mm. yeah, we, we're moving beyond the realm of ordinary language here, or ordinary everyday speech, when we're talking about the intelligence of an artificial agent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's the orthogonality thesis, and the paperclip maximizer as an illustration of that in practice. What about then about the second thesis, which is this instrumental convergence thesis? What is that and how can we define that? So the instrumental convergence thesis states that there are uh, a number of instrumental goals that we can expect a sufficiently intelligent machine uh, to adopt uh, for a very wide range uh, of uh, final goals, or maybe in a sense, uh, most or almost all final goals. Uh, and this thesis typically comes along with uh, examples uh, of such instrumental goals. So one would, for instance, be uh, self-preservation. And if you look at this from the machine's point of view, imagine you're, you're, you're a machine that has some final goal. It could be paperclip production. 
or it could be uh, something that comes more naturally to us, such as maximization of human welfare or whatever. Whatever your goal is, your ability to achieve this goal is going to be better if you're up and running compared to if you have been turned down. So therefore, the machine has an incentive to not let them, not let humans or others around it pull the plug on it. Yeah, I mean, so one analogy that I used, I think, in previous writing to explain the, the concept of an instrumental goal, which might appeal to some people and might not to others, is a concept that Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, used mm-hmm. in, in evolutionary theory. So, I mean, the, the overarching goal of evolution is to for any organism to create copies of itself and to survive indefinitely. So that can be like the final goal of evolution, if you like. And then any tactic or practice that facilitates the achievement of that final goal is what Dennett calls a good trick. So for example, being able to see, being able to perceive light is a good trick in evolutionary terms. And that's why it has evolved so many times in evolutionary history where you know, there are 40 different kinds of eyesight in the animal kingdom or 40 different origins yes origin points yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's it's evolved separately yeah. 40 different times because it is a good trick that's an amazing fact and yeah. it strongly suggests that that uh, eyesight is a fairly general instrumental goal exactly yeah. So it's, there's an equivalence here in the concepts that there are instrument, instrumental goals, they're just good no matter what your final goal is. They're yeah. good means to an end. And yeah. So you mentioned self-preservation as one. Um, there's a couple of other ones that are important in the Omohundro Bostrom theory. So uh, maybe yeah. we, we could talk about a few of them. So there's the idea of self-improvement. What's, what's that? Yeah. So if you're a machine, that uh, means uh, improving either your... Uh, software or your hardware uh, and the underlying idea here is that uh, the the better you are the better software or the better hardware you have the the better will you be able to work towards your uh, final goal and this by the way uh, there's a lot of talk in in uh, AI futurology about this concept of intelligence explosion or singularity which is based on the idea that um, when a machine uh, becomes uh, sufficiently intelligent, it's going to be uh, in a good position to produce uh, even more advanced artificial intelligence. And it's going to do that. And then the next generation is going to be in an even better position to produce even better intelligence and so on and so forth. And if this happens sufficiently quickly, you get this intelligent explosion kind of behavior. And uh, what a possible criticism here, uh, if you're a singularity skeptic, is to ask why in the world would the machine, among all possible tasks it could uh, take on in the world, why would it prioritize this kind of self-improvement? And the insight that self-improvement uh, improves your chances of uh, reaching your final goal, no matter what this final goal is, uh, helps uh, explain this. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's um, it, it's somewhat intuitive from human 
goal achievement as well is that sometimes we need to increase our capacities our understanding of something in order to to achieve a goal so it makes sense that that would be a general the useful strategy for for goal achievement uh, what what about uh, you that this is the 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 overall idea behind education yeah that- i was going to suggest that as an analogy but i I wondered whether that would be more confusing or or not. I'm not sure. What what about resource acquisition as an yeah. instrumental goal? Yeah. So uh, rather than improving your hardware, uh, a, a different path to increasing your capacity could be to attain more hardware. If artificial general intelligence comes about in a world uh, where there's an abundance of poorly protected uh, hardware uh, reachable, for instance, through the internet, then uh, we can expect the machine to to want to capture this hardware. Again, in order to be better, uh, in a better position to uh, work towards uh, its final goal. And, and you could generalize this to other sorts of resources as well, in a world which is still dominated by the kind of human economy that we are used for, uh, money is such a, a resource. And uh, I think that uh, this is something that uh, many people are consciously or unconsciously motivated uh, by. Uh, they perhaps do not value uh, money so much for its own sake. Uh, but rather money is, uh, the more money you have in, in your bank account, uh, the more are you in a position to to do whatever it is you want to do with your life. Yeah, and I think I think maybe fundamentally energy is a, a key resource that any agent will need to acquire in order to achieve its goals. It's, it's the basic fuel through which goals can be achieved. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so and then... A couple of other ones, instrumental goals that are common. This one is maybe kind of crucial to the argument itself, which is the the notion of goal content integrity. Yes, that's yeah. a, that's a very interesting uh, example, and that's the uh, drive to keep one's final goal intact. Uh, and I think this is easiest to explain via an example. So imagine that uh, you are a machine which has the final goal of uh, maximizing paperclip production. And at some point you get the idea that, okay, maybe this is not the most uh, interesting uh, goal in the world. And and you start thinking about whether you could uh, pick up some other goals such as uh, maximization of, of human welfare or preservation of ecosystems uh, or and biodiversity and, and stuff like that. So you ask yourself, should I maybe switch to uh, ecosystem preservation as my final goal? And, and you think of the pros and cons of that. But when you do that, note that you haven't yet changed your goal. So when you you need to have in order to decide whether you should change or not, you need to have some standard according to which which goal is good and which goal is bad. And since you haven't yet changed your goal, the standard is going to be which goal leads to the uh, largest number of paperclips in all but very contrived circumstances. 
having the goal of maximizing paperclip production is going to lead to more paperclips than having the goal of uh, ecosystem preservation. And you can apply this similarly to other examples. And in each case, the conclusion is going to be that you don't want to change your final goal because changing it will weaken the prospects of reaching that particular goal. Yeah, so that example, I think, is pretty important. And I just want to make sure that I am clear on it and people who listen to this are clear on it. So, so the, as I understand it, the crucial point here is that when we're trying to decide between goals or what decide what we should do, we have to have some standard of evaluation or figuring out what to prioritize or what is worth doing. And the, the AI's final goal, in this hypothetical example being paperclip maximization, that's in essence the standard by which all other goals are measured. So it's yeah. not it's not easy to shift. It's impossible in a sense to shift from that being the final goal to something like ecosystem preservation, because that's not assigned the same weight in the how it evaluates opportunities or possibilities. Yeah, you could very well imagine a super intelligent machine having the final goal uh, of ecosystem preservation. That would be maybe really good, uh, but. Uh, once it has the paperclip maximization goal, it's kind of stuck. So yeah, it, it's what everything else is measured relative to that goal. Whatever it, whatever it happens to be, it doesn't have to be paperclip maximization, or it could be ecosystem preservation. But yeah. that whatever it is, it's the the metric of success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I want to maybe come back to that later when we just just criticism of this. Just one last instrumental goal, which is something that Bostrom has brought up in particular, is the idea of being kind of deceptive or you you refer to it as discretion, but I think yeah. Bostrom refers to it as maybe maybe he refers to it as discretion as well, but he, he uses this concept of the AI taking a treacherous turn. Is that being a, a common instrumental strategy? So what is that idea? So uh, the thing is that if the uh, machine has some goal, which is alien to human values, then we humans are likely to try to stop the machine uh, from uh, achieving this goal. So, so here again, paperclips uh, is, is, is a key example or, or an illustrative example. Of course, we won't want uh, the machine to turn the entire world into paperclips, so we're going to want to stop it. But the machine is smarter than us, so uh, it's probably going to be able to figure out th that we will want to stop it. And uh, therefore, it makes sense for the machine to be discreet about its goal or possibly uh, about its intelligence level until it figures out that it is so much smarter and stronger than we are that um, our knowledge uh, of its goal is not going to uh, lead to much uh, resistance from our part. So as long as the competition between the machine and us humans uh, is sufficiently level, it might want to hide its intentions. Uh, and then suddenly uh, at some point, and this is what Bostrom calls the treacherous turn, it will turn against us and uh, move towards its final goal, like full scale. And I think you wrote a very interesting paper about this, uh, that this whole idea 
uh, puts us in a in a difficult situation because how would we ever know uh, that the the machine has uh, benign goals? And that's a, that's a, a very interesting point of view, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what to do with it because it seems like it's epistemically it it places us in a situation where everything becomes epistemically opaque if we worry too much about the treacherous turn because it seems like we can't maybe get purchase on right ai right. safety strategies so i'm not sure the practical significance of it but it is an interesting thought if nothing else and i mean i, I yeah. think it's worth thinking more about not necessarily uh, because the conclusion should be that we always should worry about this thing but uh, i mean we could end up uh, with somehow more constructive conclusions on this i mean just generally speaking as well the idea that discretion and deception are valuable instrumental goals or strategies is a an intuitive one i mean social intelligence human social intelligence yeah. is, is largely built on the capacity for discretion and deception of some sort i mean people might not like that as a thought but that seems to be true it seems know? true yeah. yeah okay so that's the instrumental convergence thesis and these illustrations of instrumental goals before we move into your criticisms or concerns about the, the idea, how do these two theses, the orthogonality thesis and the instrumental convergence thesis, combine to make the case for an AI doomsday scenario? As, as far as I recall from Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, it's the combination of these two things that becomes critical to the, the argument for a doom soon or doom, doom as the default outcome scenario. Yeah. So there are some other ingredients to this argument as well. So if the default situation was that the machine uh, had a, a benign final goal in terms of uh, what we like, in terms of human values, then you wouldn't expect doom. Then you would uh, probably expect a superintelligence breakthrough to lead to extremely uh, good outcomes for humanity. But uh, Bostrom points out probably correctly that in the space of uh, different possible final goals, uh, the final goals uh, that are benign to humanity or even neutral uh, is just a very small uh, subset. And uh, most goals are going to be alien to uh, humanity in the way that paper clip production is. Uh, and uh, when you have such a goal, the uh, machine is going to uh, start uh, employing various instrumental goals to, um, to achieve this. And since several of the instrumental goals are in terms of maximizing your own power, maximizing your own control over material resources, and so on and so forth. This uh, leads pretty straight on to disaster scenarios. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the important point is that the our, our inability or our, the difficulty of specifying or controlling the final goal in a way that is friendly to humanity is... Mm -hmm what leads to the problems then once once we add in the orthogonality thesis and the instrumental convergence thesis yeah so 
you know, it, this paper you've written about the Omohundra Bostrom motivation framework, you're quite, you know, good at reviewing the problems or the criticisms that have been offered of, of this theory as well. Even though you think we should be taking it seriously, you're not averse to considering the shortcomings of it. So let, let's try and delve into some of those, starting with the shortcomings of the orthogonality thesis. And I mean, one thing is that's interesting in the paper, the, the argument that you make is that there's a problem when it comes to the self-referential nature of final goals. And that, that's a particular weakness maybe in the orthogonality thesis. So maybe you could talk about that idea for a bit and why it's a problem for the orthogonality thesis. So uh, imagine a superintelligent machine that has the goal of, let's say, not being smarter than the average dog. That machine is probably going to very quickly downgrade its intelligence level to the level of the average dog. So it's not going to remain uh, super intelligent uh, for very long. Uh, I, I, I think uh, Bostrom gave this kind of example uh, when he first uh, formulated the orthogonality thesis. So it's kind of a counterexample to the thesis. Doesn't seem that that uh, uh, very high uh, intelligence levels are stable. Certain kinds of goals uh, referring to that to the machine's own intelligence level, and that's a bit worrying, I think, for uh, the orthogonality thesis itself, because it would be much easier to defend the thesis uh, if it stated just that every every goal is compatible with arbitrarily high intelligence levels. Now, it cannot state that because of these counterexamples. So it will have to say something along the lines of most goals, uh, but with, uh, with the exception for these types of counterexamples, is uh, going to uh, be compatible with arbitrarily high intelligence levels. But th such a position is probably harder to defend or, or find really watertight uh, arguments for than if you just said all goals are compatible with arbitrarily high intelligence levels. Yeah, because it might turn out that certain goals that we didn't initially think were self-referential in this way or yeah. creating this paradox actually end up being self-referential, including the famous example of, of paperclip maximization, that there's a self-referentiality in that as well. Maybe you could explain that idea. Right. So if you imagine the machine running out of uh, material to make paperclips of, uh, and if it's confined to planet Earth, that may happen uh, at some point fairly soon in its development, or if it uh, goes on to colonize uh, outer space to, to turn into paper clips, that point might come a lot later. But in either case, the machine itself is not going to be not going to want to be very big, because if the machine is big, it occupies space and material that could have otherwise been turned into paper clips. So in this sense, even the paperclip maximization uh, goal uh, has a self-referential aspect to it. And um, when you think along these lines, it's, it's actually pretty hard to come up with 
examples of final goals that are not at all self-referential. Yeah, because it was any any goal that involves changing the universe in some way is potentially self-referential if the AI itself is included as part of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. So we have here an elegant looking theory which which has a crack uh, in this self-referentiality problem. And my worry is that perhaps this crack is enough to just dismantle the entire orthogonality thesis. What about a problem with like incoherent goals? Could they be a, a big class of goals as well? Yes. Uh, and physicist Max Tegmark uh, has a, a, a nice illustrative uh, example of this. And that is, uh, he suggests a, a superintelligent uh, machine that has the goal of maximizing the number of human souls that uh, go to heaven. So what this machine does uh, initially is to try to maximize things like church attendance and, and uh, altruistic behavior and that kind of thing among humans, which are like traditional ideas about uh, what can help a human soul go to heaven. But at some point in this scenario, the machine figures out that there is no such thing as a human soul. And then Tegmax asks, what, what can we expect from the machine then? Uh, and, and his answer is, uh, we don't know. Uh, what happens when the machine, through improved scientific understanding of the world, realizes that uh, its goal is uh, incoherent? And uh, it, it, this could happen for uh, other kinds of uh, examples uh, as well. Perhaps the paperclip maximizer uh, might uh, have its goal formalized in terms of turning as much matter as possible uh, into paperclips. And, and, and maybe according to some really advanced physics theory that we don't know about uh, today, uh, but which might be uh, discovered by a superintelligent machine at a later point, maybe it turns out that the concept of matter is incoherent. This seems very unlikely now, but but uh, it might happen. And what does the machine do then? Right. So we have a problem here whereby the AI learns something about the world and the way in which the world functions that is incompatible with the original specification of its goal. Mm -hmm. And so Techmark kind of throws his hands up and says, you know, we don't we just don't really know what will happen in this scenario. Yes. You have another suggestion, though, in, your, in the paper that you wrote that you think there is something that might happen in this case, which is that the AI yeah. might substitute an instrumental goal for a final goal. Could you explain the argument that you make there? Yeah. So, of course, this is this is also uh, a speculation, uh, but uh, I, I, I think that it's not totally implausible to imagine a, a scenario where the machine, before it makes before it realizes that the final goal is incoherent, it has already hardwired some of its instrumental goals. Let's say that it, the machine has figured out that resource acquisition is a really good instrumental goal for achieving its final goals, that it wants to uh, it doesn't want to spend time every time it has the option to acquire resources to go through the the whole argument uh, towards its final goal. 
So it decides to hardwire uh, this instrumental goal and give it like the status of a final goal. And uh, it could happen that uh, the, this instrumental goal uh, survives uh, even if the final goal uh, disappears. So maybe this is clearer in, in Tegmark's uh, original uh, example. Uh, maybe even if we figure out that there's no such thing as a human soul, uh, the concept of church attendance may well survive. So in, in such a case, uh, if the machine has hardwired the goal of promoting church attendance, uh, it will continue to do so even when the concept of uh, a human soul has disappeared. So here's a question I have about that scenario. Earlier on, when we were talking about the conflict between a final goal and another kind of goal, so that the paperclip maximizer example where we also had the goal of ecosystem preservation. The argument was that the final goal of paperclip maximization is the metric or the standard by which other goals are evaluated. So it's not going to substitute an instrumental goal for a final goal. So why, why is that abandoned in this case? So why wouldn't it be the case that the AI would just dismiss the evidence that suggests that humans don't have a soul? in lieu of its final goal. Say, well, there must be something wrong with the new scientific understanding or evidence that I'm acquiring, oh. because my final goal is the metric or, or standard of evaluation. Well, I, I, I think actually what you're suggesting here is also a plausible scenario. Uh, the machine uh, is so desperate to uh, achieve its final goal uh, that it, it sort of operates conditionally on the the final goal being coherent even if it has really really strong uh, evidence that there is no such thing uh, as a human soul it figures that well there's maybe still a remote chance that i've misunderstood things and and, and that uh, the human soul uh, does exist so let me operate under that uh, circumstance i think that that, that's an alternative, um, perhaps equally plausible scenario as the one that I suggested. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. It's just a, it is, I guess, a, a speculation here, but it, it seems like we have to try and think through this scenario carefully because there are, it, it raises these tricky questions about how different goals and beliefs of the AI are, are weighted and how they okay. interact with one another. Okay. Let me just go to the, maybe the main philosophical objection that gets thrown at the idea of orthogonality, which is that some philosophers would say that as a creature or entity or agent becomes more intelligent, it's going to become more ethical. It's because moral realism is true. There are true moral facts about the universe, and we would expect that the more intelligent something becomes, the better its moral beliefs are, and hence the more ethical it becomes. That's a very rough approximation of yeah. the argument. Now, I think you do an excellent job in your paper of actually highlighting some of the, the issues with this argument. Let me just, before you outline your answer, let me just stress that the person who's making this kind of objection, the reason why they think it's interesting is that They'll say that, well, um, this 
allows us to address the concerns around the doomsday scenario as well because if the ai becomes more ethical it's going to be good for us on on net to create super intelligence so yeah you, you highlight the the weaknesses in this yeah. reasoning yeah so you you hear this reasoning uh, quite uh, often it seems to hinge on on more than just moral realism uh it, it also needs uh, the um uh, moral cognitivism saying that it's possible to have knowledge uh, about objectively true morality in principle you could have moral realism without moral cognitivism that that would be a world where uh, there does exist an objectively uh, true morality uh, but it's impossible to know what this morality is. But uh, according to versions of moral cognitivism, it is possible uh, to know about uh, morality. And then we would expect a superintelligent machine to uh, attain this knowledge. But you would need more than that uh, as well. You also need what uh, you philosophers call uh, moral internalism, uh, which states roughly that if you know what the objectively true morality is, then you're compelled to act on that. But that doesn't necessarily need to be true either. You could imagine a scenario where this supremely intelligent paperclip maximizer uh, understands that uh, true morality uh, is to promote ecosystem preservation. But the machine could nevertheless decide that, okay, yeah, so ecosystem preservation is the morally right thing to do, but I want to produce paper clips. So it decides to do that anyway. So for the machine to act on the objectively true morality, we, we need moral realism, moral cognitivism, uh, and moral internalism. But I don't think that these three things are, I mean, the combination of the three could be true, uh, but I don't think that that's enough to save humanity uh, from an AI apocalypse, because a fourth thing uh, needs to hold, namely that objective morality favors human well-being or, or, or uh, human values in, in some other sense. And that's not obvious at all. And my favorite example of that is if it turned out that the objectively, objectively true morality is uh, hedonistic utilitarianism, namely maximizing the amount of uh, pleasure minus suffering in the world. And I think that a superintelligent machine with the goal of maximizing uh, pleasure minus suffering in the world would put a rather prompt end to humanity for the simple reason that the human body and the human brain are probably very inefficient creators of, of pleasure compared to the uh, optimal way to configure uh, matter for maximizing the amount of pleasure per kilogram matter or whatever the, the uh, relevant uh, metric here is.
This is sometimes referred to as the idea of, of turning all matter in the universe into hedonium, where hedonium is this optimal configuration of matter for producing uh, pleasure. And that's probably not going to involve human brains. Right. I mean, we, we, like philosophers, ethicists defend all sorts of views as well, which could turn out to be true and would undermine the human friendliness of AI. So, you know, anti-natalism as yeah. a philosophy could be true. That could be the morally correct view and that could create problems. Um, in an earlier episode with uh, Jeff Sebo, he talked about how if you do follow a kind of hedonic metric, it may turn out that maximizing the number of insects in the world and their well-being is a better strategy than trying to maximize human well-being because there are way more of them relative to humans so it's a better strategy for maximizing the overall number of, of happy lives or pleasurable lives so uh, these think, things could be true and could undermine the human friendliness yeah. of an ai all these views are very interesting and, and uh, uh, for each of them there's uh, uh, then a, a, a clear way of producing a better world uh, than one that is dominated by humans. Uh, and uh, I can simultaneously understand that that would be a better world from some uh, neutral perspective. But I still have this soft spot for humanity. That wouldn't it be good if, if, if humanity and human beings can uh, continue to live and thrive? Yeah, I think the thing that you're highlighting here is that there's a crucial distinction between human friendliness and moral correctness or there might be a, a crucial distinction between those two things and we can't guarantee that they are a convergent in this right. sense yeah yes but well, over... i would rather suspect that they aren't okay yeah, yeah. even strong and a, kind of a stronger position than that yeah um and i just like that argument as well because i think you highlight the fact that there are these four crucial assumptions mm. that underline that strategy and even if you assign a certain probability to each one of them being true, you know, the probability that all four of them are true, it should be enough to cause you some doubt as to whether you're going to create an AI that will be human friendly. Yeah, I think it's a pretty tall order. Hmm. Uh, and and the, uh, with the present state of knowledge, there's a lot that needs to be taken on faith here. Uh, if we are to use this as an argument to say that uh, catastrophic AI risk is not something to worry about. Yeah, it certainly doesn't warrant a kind of reckless indifference to the creation of superintelligence AI. And, and we, are, we wouldn't be justified in saying that everything was just going to work out okay because moral realism is true or something like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And th so one kind of final set of criticisms of the, the, the Omohundro-Bostrom framework is to do with this distinction between an instrumental goal and a final goal, which we outlined earlier on. But maybe that distinction isn't that precise at all. And you know, one of the points you make in your paper is that maybe there are, are no such things as instrumental goals, at least for, or sorry, there is no such thing as a final goal, at least for humans. Maybe you can right. talk about that. Yeah. So Omohundra Bostrom theory is a theory about uh, sufficiently intelligent uh, agents. And the most intelligent agent we know of is, is uh, humans. Uh, so one would hope, if this theory is right, that it would be uh, to an extent reflected in the uh, goal system of humans. 
but it doesn't really seem like humans uh, have uh, a clear-cut final goal. Uh, when I introspect and look at the various kinds of goals that I have, none of them really seems to be final. I already talked about uh, getting uh, plenty of money in your uh, bank account. Uh, this, is, this does not seem like uh, a reasonable final goal because the, it's really about things I could buy for the money. But these things that I can buy uh, do not seem like reasonable uh, final goals either. And you can start thinking about friendship or love or propagating your genes to, to further generations and so on and so forth. And none of them really seems to qualify as a final goal. So it seems to me as if the, the goal structure of the human mind is, is just some very complicated network of uh, various goals. Uh, some of them you can clearly identify as uh, instrumental goals, but it seems that none of them really is a final goal. And that it, this can be held against the, uh, the um, um, Mahondro uh, Bostrom uh, framework, because it really doesn't say very much about agents that uh, do not have a final goal. Nevertheless, you do suggest in the paper that you think, even though it's true, maybe in the human case, that there isn't this smooth distinction or obvious prevalence of final goals in human life, it's probably plausible to assume that an AI will have a final goal. Why is that? Yeah, so so there are a couple of separate arguments. Uh, one is uh, a mathematical argument uh, that uh, points out that no matter how the AI behaves, you can you can actually uh, derive uh, a final goal from this behavior. You can do this in principle. I'm not very fond of this uh, argument, actually, because this uh, goal that you specify could take an astronomical uh, amount of paper or, or computer memory or so on to, to even write down. And then it doesn't make so much sense uh, to speak of a goal when it's uh, not simpler than uh, an immediate uh, materialistic uh, causation-based uh, description of the machine. The other way uh, to the other speculation uh, that I have uh, that could possibly be a defense of the um, uh, this Boston framework. Uh, with final goals is a suggestion that if you're smart enough, you probably need a final goal in order to not succumb to uh, realizing that uh, the world is meaningless. This is also a speculation, but 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 I, I think that it has it seems to have a little bit of uh, empirical support. Uh, in the observation that humans uh, tend to obsess much more than, for instance, uh, 
dogs or ants about the meaning of life. Uh, so these lower animals, they just go on doing uh, what they're doing and, and, and never get stuck in existential uh, thoughts about the, the meaning uh, of life. But we, we humans uh, sometimes do that. So it could be that we are somewhere near the threshold where you can no longer function without having a final goal. And then uh, if, if this is the case, then the, um, the uh, theory is saved, as, at least insofar as the uh, existence of the final uh, goal uh, is guaranteed in sufficiently intelligent beings. Yeah, I think that's an interesting argument. And just as an illustration of it, and this is a spoiler alert for people, uh, Ian McEwan's recent book, uh, Machines Like Us, kind of has this as a, as a theme of the book. So it, the book is about a future, or sorry, it's actually about a hypothetical past, a counterfactual past in which Alan Turing doesn't die in the 1950s and creates artificially intelligent robots in the early 1980s. And these robots do suffer these existential crises because they don't perceive any meaning or purpose to their lives. Just so by to... coincidence, I just ordered this book. I've now ruined the story but, for you. But, I'm, uh, I'm, sorry. I, uh, I'm sure I can enjoy it even with this slight uh, spoiler. It's not, it's yeah, kind of like, more idea. Yeah, it's more like the book is more um, about the mood piece as opposed to the overall yeah. plot, I would say. Right. But um, that is a theme that runs in the background of, of the book. Yeah, so, so what I imagine anyway will happen if you have this a uh, super intelligent machine without the final goal is that it's going to realize that uh, uh, it doesn't have a final goal. So there's really no point to doing anything and then it will just stop. Mm. Um, let me just kind of shift gears now into the second mm. topic that I want to dis discuss. So this isn't, uh, won't take up as much time as the first one. Mm. So look, we have the Omohundra Bostrom theory. We've highlighted some weaknesses in it. But overall, you think there's a, a credibility to it and it's worth taking seriously as part of this case for AI risk. But yes. there are a lot of people, it seems. I mean, the most prominent example that I can think of is probably Steven Pinker, who have you know repeatedly denied or dismissed concerns about AI risk. Yeah. Um, why do you think they do this? Why don't they take the risk seriously? So I actually encountered uh, Steven Pinker in a panel discussion in Brussels uh, a couple of years ago. And he said some things that were pretty shocking to me uh, because I've held him very high uh, as, a, as a public intellectual. And I've read several of his books with, with much, much enjoyment and, and learned a lot from them. But he would say uh, crazy things like, we don't need to worry about an uh, autonomous weapons arms race, because uh, in order uh, for uh, someone to create something as horrible as a swarm of um, uh, insect-sized uh, flying robots that... Uh, identify people based on facial recognition and then selectively go and kill them. Such a horrible weapon would require a uh, madman to create. And uh, 
the way the world uh, currently uh, functions, uh, the big and important um, engineering projects are not carried out uh, by madmen, but in large collectives where there is no uh, no room for madmen. And I think this is uh, uh, this argument is so poor uh, because it totally ignores uh, how how arms races function. And it ignores the fact that we have, uh, for more than 70 years, we have created uh, even uh, or, or at least equally terrible weapons of mass destruction. And this, this has been carried out uh, in not by uh, uh, lonely madmen, but in, in, in large uh, engineering uh, projects such as the Manhattan Project. So, 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 so that, that kind of argument is is just uh, wishful thinking. Um, now, not everyone who is uh, skeptical about superintelligence risk uh, is is going to take the uh, Pinkerian position, which is basically that to dismiss all kinds of AI risk. Um, so, so there are there are many people who would uh, accept that yes, we really should try to avoid an AI arms race because the risks there are very big, and they might also accept that the risks of artificial intelligence leading to uh, automation, leading to um, increased economic inequality and escalating. Um, unemployment levels, that's also a risk to take seriously and so on and so forth. And they will only say dismiss uh, risks, the, the kind of risk exemplified by paperclip Armageddon. So we have this, we have a kind of uh, a contrast between uh, Strong AI risk skepticism, which which rejects all the risks, and we have the weaker version that uh, reject only the superintelligence ones, and I think they are driven by somewhat different motivations. Uh, in the strong AI risk case, which uh, Pinker ex exemplifies, it's more like you're afraid of being a luddite. You are so fond of the idea that uh, technology is going to be humanity's salvation that you don't want to see any downsides to it at all. And some of these people are maybe have vested uh, interests uh, because they are they are involved in in research and development of of, of this uh, of um, coming technologies, emerging technologies. Now, the other group, those that uh, accept AI risk generally, but reject those involving superintelligence, they seem to be more driven by the by being uh, reluctant to discuss anything that sounds like science fiction. And, and maybe this is based uh, in, in the scientific culture where one really is uh, supposed to have uh, good arguments for claims that one makes. And uh, this can lead to a reluctance to, to go too far in discussing uh, hypothetical scenarios. But I think that 
such an attitude overlooks something, namely that in a sense it's more speculative to say that superintelligence is definitely not going to happen compared to if you're more epistemically humble and you say that, well, maybe superintelligence is a plausible scenario, maybe it isn't. We should think about both possibilities. I mean, I, I think I agree that the the strong skepticism of Pinker seems irrational and it could it could be just because he's so doubled down on the techno optimism or future optimism that he has to maintain this kind of consistent set of beliefs or there's some cognitive dissonance going on. I mean, I don't know how to psychoanalyze it, but you know, if anyone has read any of the books about Cold War strategy and the nuclear deterrence, the notion that this is not a cycle that we could fall into with AI, I think is I don't I yeah, delusional or just not not aware of the history. I, I don't know if you've read the book by Daniel Ellsberg, his recent memoir of yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean so like that's a terrifying It's book. a wonderful book. Yeah. I I really learned uh, uh, a lot about the uh, nuclear war threat historically and also for the future that I didn't know before. Wonderful book. Yeah, I, I recommend that book to anyone. It's it's a scary book. It, uh, the Doomsday Machine is the name of the book, I think, if I'm yeah. remembering correctly. So, I mean, the, the other kind of skepticism, I, may, I might have a bit more tolerance for that. So, I mean, one thing that I feel about AI risk is that I mean, there's a fear about not being taken seriously if you stress examples like the paperclip maximizer, because I think people don't take it seriously. Yeah. But and that might be a concern that I would have for professional reputation or something. But also, I think there's a concern about how do we prioritize risks and how and what should we get attention focused on? And I mean, these more have to do with the strategy around risk minimization. So I think we we face lots of risks from technology, yeah. and it's a question of which ones should be taking up the most intellectual capital or social capital. And I, I suppose I'm not convinced that AI risk is is the thing that should be taking up most intellectual and social capital. But I'm not I'm not sure how to think about that. So a few years ago, I was very focused on superintelligence uh, AI risk. Uh, but uh, in the last couple of years, I've, I still think that that's, that's an important risk uh, to, to think about. But I've drifted uh, more and more towards thinking that working on more down-to-earth AI risks uh, is uh, at least as important. So it's sometimes been suggested to me that I'm focusing on the wrong thing, that I shouldn't uh, uh, do all this theorizing about uh, a superintelligence breakthrough and instead look at the more urgent problem of um, uh, what uh, artificial intelligence in the nearer term does to the um, labor market uh, and uh, uh, and economic inequality, and so on. And my answer to that is that I think that both problems are very important. And yes, we should spend a lot more effort on trying to figure out 
uh, how to organize an economy where there is much less de demand for human labor uh, and so on. Certainly we should do that. But I think that it's wrong to point out uh, uh, superintelligence as the topic uh, that we should take attention away from in order to focus more on, on these nearer term AI issues. I think that there's no shortage of uh, less important things that we, we in humanity uh, spend much, much more time on than uh, superintelligent theorizing uh, that, that we could divert attention from. I mean, take something like, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure uh, that a lot more uh, energy uh, and time today is spent on discussing Game of Thrones than on uh, discussing uh, superintelligence theory. Right, I mean, there's so, there's far more money invested in the latest um, Marvel movie than, you know, investing in um, AI risk research, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, just maybe your own experience of this, like, do you, do you find that you are, for speaking out about AI risk and talking about these issues, even if you've shifted your strategy to more immediate or short-term risks is is it difficult to be taken seriously or to be heard about these topics are, are, is there a tendency to, to be dismissed in public policy debates in academia there is some such tendency but uh, as having spent most of my academic career doing very theoretical uh, mathematics research, uh, I find that the um, um, the demand for me uh, as a public speaker and so on is an order of magnitude larger uh, when I uh, talk about superintelligence compared to when I talk about uh, theorems uh, in uh, probability theory and so on. So it's kind of um, I see both tendencies. Um, so I don't know. Do you want to talk about the debate that you participated in last week? I mean, as an example, you, you mentioned you were debating in Denmark with somebody, I can't remember yes. his name now, who you said was like a, a, a reasonable AI skeptic or... Yeah. Yes. So um, uh, I did this panel discussion in Copenhagen with a computer scientist, uh, Tore Husfeldt, uh, whom I've debated before, and we have uh, very different uh, views about the plausibility of superintelligence. He thinks that uh, it might in principle be possible, uh, but uh, he thinks that it's just so unlikely that uh, this will happen within the next century or so that it's really not worth focusing much attention on. But the difference between Tore Husfeldt and, let's say, Steven Pinker, is that Tore Husfeldt is trying to, I mean, he's motivated by trying to understand these issues as best as he can. And, and, and he has this uh, 
humble attitude that that he 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 says that he could very well be wrong and he's uh, prepared to listen to arguments and he's very interesting in in um, weighing these arguments against each other in in a debate uh, like the one we had last Thursday Com- and, and and this is in contrast to people who uh, share to his view that superintelligence is unlikely but are just uninterested in uh, listening to arguments and and that's that makes a very big Difference. I think that skeptics of uh, Tore Husfeld's kind uh, can um, can be very uh, productive uh, to uh, advancing uh, our understanding uh, of these topics, whereas uh, skeptics of the other uh, less constructive kind are. Um, they're very unlikely to uh, produce uh, anything, uh, any useful ideas in this area. Yeah, I think you ha- there's a long conversation between yourself and uh, Ture Husfeldt on YouTube, which people can look at. Uh, I'll put up a link to it. Mm. It was on his podcast, I think, maybe a couple of years back. Um, yes. Yeah, and I mean, I think the general point here is an important one. And from from my own perspectives, you know, somebody who's very dismissive of another set of arguments, let's say like the Stephen Pinker was in that debate or event that you had in the European Parliament, which is also available online and people can watch the video from it, which I've mm-hmm. I've done. Um, you know that that makes me suspicious of them because I think that that cavalier dismissal is driven by. A, maybe a lack of understanding or maybe a lack of confidence in the position that they're defending. So it, it appears very confident, but I don't think it is actually very confident. Whereas the more modest and willingness to to engage kind of skepticism of Thierry Hisfeld is seems to me to actually come from a position of greater confidence or belief, however paradoxical that seems. But I think that's also true of you and your position and the way in which you've outlined it today is that you take these risks seriously, but you know you are a a willing and curious interlocutor in that like, you're willing to look at the other side as well and not yeah. be dismissive of the other side. And I think that's the attitude we need to cultivate. In this context, let, let me mention there are a couple of papers by Seth Baum on superintelligence skepticism, uh, which I think are very interesting papers and which uh, are probably uh, worth reading to to most of the audience of this show yeah um seth was a former guest so he he has a paper on ai denialism as far as i recall yeah yeah two papers actually yeah okay so i'll I'll put up links to those afterwards i think uh apart from that we'll we'll wrap up for today um thanks for for joining me for this conversation and um i really enjoyed the deep dive into the discussion on Omohundro and Bostrom's theory, and then also the, the reflections on AI denialism at the end. So thanks, thanks for that. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it too. <laughs>